0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Wildscast. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of a Lunch and Learn on Facebook Live. It's the first in a special two-part series called, Do We Really Make Our Own Choices? What Judaism Teaches Us About Our Ability to React to Things in the Right Way. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. In this series, Rabbi Wilds reflects on the terrible tragedy of the death of George Floyd and the reaction which has ensued across the United States. So, without further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds.
1: I have a little of an introduction before we get into the source sheet anyway. And that is to talk a little about what is happening um, in our society, what's going on throughout the United States. Um, And I think as of last night, there were something like 26 cities that were um, put on curfew because of the riots and everything that's been uh, happening Um, because of the death of uh, George Floyd, a blessed memory, and a terrible, terrible um, travesty of justice. Um, I want to dedicate, with your permission... Um, My class today and really all this week, all the classes I teach, I'd like to uh, learn Torah in memory of my beloved teacher uh, and mentor, Rabbi uh, Dr. Norman Lamb, who unfortunately passed away. Um, There'll be a special memorial service for Rabbi Lamb tomorrow. For those of you unfamiliar, Rabbi Lamb was one of the great Torah luminaries um, in the last hundred years. He was 92. When he died, he lived here on the Upper West Side. And I had the great merit and honor of having a personal relationship with him. Um, We have a couple of MGE fellows, Jordy just came on and Daniel Wallach and others that are watching that have been Lamb fellows because we named, MGE named its most important signature educational program in honor of Rabbi Dr. Norm Lamb because of how much we respect his scholarship and his Torah. And uh, with your permission, I'd like to um, dedicate my words of Torah to the memory of Rabbi Lam. And uh, I will be over the course of the week sharing nuggets and ideas from Rabbi Lamb um, and personal experiences that I've had the zechut of having with him. Uh, he was an amazing, amazing personality. And I know I speak on behalf of Rabbi Ezra, uh, who's online with us as well. He also got smicha, and I believe... Rabbi Ezra, your smicha is also signed. Your ordination is signed by Rabbi Lamb as well. Um, Rabbi Lamb was an extraordinarily brilliant, articulate, and diplomatic personality. And um, I think this situation calls for some diplomacy uh, and some outrage at the same time. Um, The killing of uh, George Floyd was nothing less than, not just tragic, but in a terrible, terrible expression of racism that unfortunately is a, is a real problem in this country. Um, I don't remember how much of, of you remember uh, before Corona broke out, the Jewish community was dealing with a spike, with an increase in anti Semitism. There is a problem with racism, with bigotry, with anti Semitism in America. And it's serious and it's real. And it pervades every aspect of life. Here we see it in the police force. But my message um, is to, is not only to become more and more sensitive to bigotry, anti-Semitism, racism, and that's been a message of MGE and it's been a message that I have been teaching my entire life, but now to have the kind of reaction that we're seeing uh, of looters and of people just wreaking havoc as as some kind of reaction, some kind of legitimate kind of reaction that there is no such thing as looting or taking and stealing, or God forbid, even worse, of going over to random members of the police force who we continue to owe a great allegiance to. There are problems in every community and the police force is no different. There are bigots and racists clearly in the police force. And they have to be rooted out, and they have to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law, anyone and everyone involved in that terrible incident. But to randomly go over to police officers and and set their cars on fire, and uh, there was a police officer in New York City who was attacked with brass knuckles, and I mean it's just I heard that Bloomingdale's was just looted, and 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 I saw the CNN center in Minneapolis where this whole thing started. Uh, people just throwing Molotov cocktails and 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 um, and rocks and just it, it it gives a bad name to what is a very noble movement, the civil rights movement in this country. Uh, I was raised um, to respect greatly the writings and teachings of the late and great Martin Luther King, and I posted a quote from Martin Luther King, who was famous for. Civil disobedience, and he was able to accomplish so much more by preaching love than responding with hate. And the general reaction, of course, when something bad happens, is just to lash out and to say, "Well, now nobody cares; no one's paying attention. They will pay attention when we start um, looting, when we start causing chaos and havoc." And that just brings a terrible, terrible name to whatever movement that is a really noble movement. The civil rights movement is extraordinarily noble and important, and we as Jews should be at the forefront. If you've seen um, the famous pictures of Abraham Joshua Heschel, a great rabbi who I quote often, and other great rabbinic figures in the 1960s marching in Selma, Alabama with the late and great Martin Luther King, Jews were at the forefront and remain at the forefront and should remain at the forefront for civil liberties, for um human rights movements throughout the world but we have to also teach the world that there's a way to react and there's a way not to react and this is not the way to react there is no moral uh permission or any kind of justification um to perform an act of violence on anyone simply because they are police officers simply because we're angry and we're upset and there's a common kind of um Uh, refrain that you often hear, and I've seen this also in the, um, we we saw this in the height of the Intifada, where there were Palestinian groups literally blowing themselves up in malls, in Israeli malls, and going into movie theaters and restaurants, and saying, what else? We have no choice. How else can we react to our lack of political freedom, to our helplessness uh, under this Israeli occupation, we, we have no other choice other than to strap bombs to our bodies and kill innocent people. And there is always a choice. And my topic uh, today and tomorrow, I called it the matrix. Do we really make our own choices? Do we have the opportunity to choose or are there moments in life where we are so angry and legitimately people are angry? This was a terrible, terrible crime against humanity. It was not just a crime against an African-American person. This was a crime against anyone created in God's image, to be, to be killed in the way that he was killed. Uh, it, it was it's so awful and, and disgusting and terrible. and We have to cry out for there to be reform in police enforcement and in the way that justice is meted out in this country. Uh, it is just wrong and Jews have to stay at the forefront, but we also have to be at the forefront in terms of how we react. And how the world reacts and what is an appropriate response. And and no one feels the word appropriate is appropriate when something terrible happens like it did with George Floyd. Right? People just want to go crazy and they want to just burn stuff and they want to hit people. And it's just it's wrong. It's wrong. We have to be more disciplined. We have to be more humane about the way we react. And I, I really do believe that people then respond more positively. And and, and that's the feeling. No, no one's going to take us seriously unless we go crazy. No one's going to take us seriously unless we beat people up randomly in the street. And just, I mean, what does looting a store, you know, some of those stores are owned by African-Americans too. What is the point of doing this? It's getting everyone's attention, but it's not going to help the problem. And I I understand, I'm not excusing it because it's wrong and it's immoral. And I understand the frustration and the anger, people just wanna to, want to break stuff and hurt people to get noticed to make change in the society. That's not the way we make change, and that's not the way we, we, we make notice. The question is, is there control? And that's really the theme um, of my discussion uh, today and tomorrow, and that is the choices that we make. Because it's easy to make choices when you have a choice between, you know, my son is now applying to graduate programs, so Thankfully, I wanna wish him a mazel tov. He just got into Fordham and NYU, two really good schools for social work, and he's considering a D, blah, blah, blah. These are all nice choices. But do you have a choice when, let's say the Palestinians claimed they had no choice? And I'll tell you another story. This is a true story, actually, of a hockey coach. Who was killed by one of the parents of the hockey players in college? Terrible, terrible incident. And I saw it on Law and Order, but I Googled it, and it was actually a real story and case that came before the Massachusetts State Court, where a high school kid was playing hockey, and he got pulled out of the game, and there were some scouts from some of the colleges, and the father went ballistic, and he lunged at the po- at the coach and he started strangling the coach. He didn't intend on killing him, but he was so angry and he was so overcome by rage because the scouts were there and he wanted his son to get a good scholarship to a college based on his uh, hockey abilities and the coach pulled him out for whatever reason. He ended up killing the coach. It was terrible. And he was brought up on charges of manslaughter and the defense argued that this man could not be held accountable for his crime because he had no, cho- not that he had no choice, but that his, his anger, it was sort of road rage gone crazy. Now, the jury didn't buy it and he was convicted of manslaughter and he served time. But the fact that the, that the defense could even advocate that can say that like certain things are just out of our reach. And there are people who believe that human beings really don't have free will. We are conditioned based on our environment, based on our genetics we are we can almost um, predict the way people are going to behave under certain circumstances and therefore if someone god forbid is life is taken we can predict that someone is going to trash a car or stop a police officer god forbid in the street and start pummeling him is that person mean that does that mean that we can no longer bring that person to trial that person had no choice it was in their genes they, were, they, were, they, they have aggressive tendencies. You know, do we believe this? And there are pockets within the world that believe in, well, or don't believe, if you will, in the concept of free will and free choice. And, and I want to, um, I want to, and, and I call this class also, taking control of a seemingly uncontrollable life, where we turn to each other and we say, what can you do, what can you expect? By the way, you should just also know that the Nazis, Yimach Shalom, the Nazis tried to demonstrate this, that you could control a person's behavior if you limit their circumstances. The concentration camps, according to some, were a social experiment to say that you can take a human being with free will, strip them or her of their free will by so depriving them of the, the, um, of dignity. And you put them in a situation, and of course Viktor Frankl, uh, one of the reasons he wrote his book, Man's Search for Meaning, was to demonstrate that the Nazis were proven wrong. Every time a Jew shared his measly rations of food with someone else and performed an act of kindness in the camps, they demonstrated that the Nazi proposition that you can control human behavior just like you can control an animal's behavior, that they were wrong question is what's the Torah perspective on this and I want to study some really fascinating sources again I'd like to do this in memory of my late and great teacher Rabbi Lamb and also I'd like to do this in memory um, for the elevation of the soul um, of um, of George Floyd uh, whose death we mourn but uh, whose memory should be thought of in the proper way when you, when you submit to Qas, so we're going to talk about that, Eddie, thank you. Eddie just wrote that when you submit to Qas, Qas is anger. Um, the Talmud says that you are caving in to the worst part of you, the part of you that wants to go out and worship idols. We're going to talk about that uh, as well. Do we have choices? Can we really control our anger? Okay, so take a look at source number one. Um, first of all, on a little lighter note, because it's a very, very serious to- topic, Um, the idea of free will. They tell the story of a young couple getting married uh, who came to the synagogue office to fill out those pre-marriage questionnaire forms. And the young man who'd never talked to a rabbi before was very nervous and the rabbi was trying to put him at ease. And when they got to the question, are you entering this marriage of your own free will? There was a very long pause. And finally, the girl, the bride-to-be, looked over at her groom and said, just write yes. (laughs) do we have a choice and do we really have free will over the decisions we make in our lives now on the surface the answer is yes and as you can hear already my attitude towards this is yes no one is telling me no one is to, no one put a gun to your head and said you should come in we have 39 people listening to this right now beautiful crowd right no one is telling you you have to take an hour off from your work or 45 minutes to um you know to uh to come to this learning uh, program on the night of Shavuot, I stayed up all night and learned with my boys a little. Um, it was great. N- n- nobody put a gun to me. I could have gone to sleep, but like two thirty in the morning, I was starting to get really tired. I was just going to go to sleep. I was like, no, I'm going to push through. No one told me I had to become a lawyer when I w- when I went to school, or I had to go to or I had to go to medical school. Well, maybe at some point, our Jewish mothers told us we had to do one or the other but um, not sure how much free will we really have there. But in general, we have the ability to choose. Not so simple. Studies seem to indicate that we are largely a product of our environment, and that despite our free will to choose whatever path in life we want, more than often we repeat the same trends and even the same mistakes of our parents and the people that are closest to us. A recent study conducted by Nicholas Wolfinger of the University of Utah concluded that despite the many children of divorced parents who vow never to get divorced themselves, never to put themselves and their own children through the pain that they went through, statistically, most people go through it themselves. The research suggests that if one spouse comes from divorced parents, the couple is twice likely to divorce, and spouses or both children of divorced parents are three times as likely to get divorced. Studies show that 80% of teens with gambling problems had at least one parent who gambled. Children of alcoholics, four times more likely to become alcoholics themselves. And how many of us just listening to this vowed never to do certain things or to speak in a certain kind of way? Maybe we heard that kind of language when we grew up or I don't know, we had friends that we didn't like that spoke in a certain way and we vowed never to repeat that that information. But we find ourselves doing that because we grew up around that kind of behavior or because we're surrounded by it today so are we really free we say we're free and we believe we're free judaism teaches we're free to make whatever decisions we and to react to bad situations in life not like the way people are some people are reacting to the death of uh, of george floyd but we know that Who our parents are plays a huge role. Who our friends are plays a huge role. The school we went to, the socioeconomic class in which we were raised. So what is the Jewish approach to this? Are we really free or are we not? Or is it basically made up primarily of the environment and even some genetics? So I want to turn your attention to the very unique approach of the Ramban. Nachmanides If you look at source number one on your handout, I think uh, Binyamin, um, I hope Binyamin was able to post the handout. Binyamin, have you posted the handout? Ah, here's a link. You are the man, Binyamin. Uh, There's a link there. Take a look at source number one, Ramban, Nachmanides. If anybody has any comments or questions, I'm looking at your comments and questions uh, to see if I can be of any help and a resource to you so the ramban who was from spain he lived uh in gerona from 1194 uh, until the year 1270 Um, he was an extraordinary scholar at the age of 16 he had already mastered the entire talmud with all of its commentaries and at that very early age wrote a talmudic work called the milchamot hashem and he went on to write other important works on Jewish philosophy. He was the famous rabbi who was um, chosen to debate Pablo Christianity in the famous disputation with the uh, Christian church. And he wrote a very, very important um, commentary in the Bible that we're gonna be reading from. And in, in that commentary on the Bible, the Ramban Nachmanides asks the following question about the entire book of Genesis, the first of the five books of Moses. Why does Genesis contain so many details concerning the life of Abraham and Sarah, Avram and Sarah? The Torah is so careful not to waste words, and and the Torah in Genesis details so many particulars in the life of Avram and Sarah. Every little pit stop they made on the way into Israel, and then then when they got to Israel, the wells that they dug to find water, uh, then they had to leave Israel to escape a famine, the problems that they faced with having children. The whole book of Genesis gives us all of this glaring detail about their lives and about the lives of their sons and grandsons, Jacob and Isaac, the disputes their families got into, the dreams that they dreamt, the wells they dug, if you're familiar with some of the stories of Sefer Breshit, And they're interesting stories, and that's the way we start learning about the Torah from all these stories about our patriarchs and matriarchs. Why are the life experiences of our patriarchs and matriarchs so important, in detail, for us to know? So take a look at source number one on the handout. Literally, it says, uh, "There's no page, but it's got my name on top." Manhattan Jewish Experience, The Matrix. Do we really make our own life choices? So take a look. I'm going to read it. Amar l'chak klal. Nachman, he says, "I'm going to tell you an important principle." Tavin oto b'chol aparshiyot about Binyan Avram Yitzchak v'Yaakov. It's an important principle you should keep in mind when you read all the passages in the Bible concerning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. V'unyan Gadol, and this is a very major principle, I'll just continue in the English, which the sages mentioned succinctly when they said, Kol ma she'era la'avot siman labanim. Anything that happened in the Bible to our patriarchs is really a sign for their descendants. Um, And this is a very, very important phrase. If you want to come out remembering one little phrase, which means the the things, the actions of the patriarchs, referring also to the matriarchs too, the thing personalities. Masalvot siman labanim is a sign for the children, meaning those stories are those stories are recorded in such detail, not because, not, not not simply because of what happened then, because. That stuff gets repeated later on in history. The reason that the verse's second paragraph go to such lengths in recounting the details of the patriarch's travels and their digging of wells and other incidents. And one contemplating these incidents may consider the matters that are superfluous, without purpose. In truth, however, all of these events come to teach regarding the future. For when an incident occurred to a prophet amongst the three patriarchs, There can be understood from it an allusion to something that was decreed to happen to his descendants. The reason, says Nachmanides, that so many things are mentioned in such glaring detail in the book of Genesis is because we're not just recapping something that happened before, it's telling us that these things are going to happen again. You should know that any decree of the angels, when it leaves the realm of a potential decree to become a symbolic act, that decree will be fulfilled in any event. So whatever happened during the lives of the Avot, the Imahot, the patriarchs, the matriarchs, will determine what's going to happen in the future. And the Ramban goes through his commentary and gives a couple of examples. Look at source number two, famine and slavery. Here's an example. There was a famine in the land and Abraham descended to Egypt and lived there for the famine was severe. You know, Abraham had to leave Israel to escape the famine. And it occurred as he was about to enter Egypt and his wife, Sarah, said, behold, now I have known that you are a woman of beautiful appearance. Remember, Sarah was very beautiful and they were concerned that the Egyptians would just take Sarah and kill Abraham because they had no morals. Now I've known that you are a beautiful woman and it shall occur when the Egyptians will see you, they will say, this is his wife, they'll kill me and, then they, and, you, and they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister. He tells his wife, Sarah, to lie. Tell everyone that you're my sister. They have some crazy code of ethics they don't kill the brother, only the only the husband, so that it may go well with me for your sake, and that I may live on account of you. And then, if you look, look at the Ramban, what he says, know that our father Abraham unwittingly committed a great sin. For he brought his righteous wife to a potential pitfall of sin because of his fear that the Egyptians would kill him. Instead, he should have trusted in God that he would save him and his wife and all that. was his. Nachman, he says something very controversial. He says, Abraham was wrong he committed a sin by going down to egypt he should have waited out the famine furthermore his leaving the land that he was originally commanded to move to due to the famine was an iniquity which is a sin for he should have known that god in famine would deliver him from death and it was on this account of the of this act that abraham that exile in the land of egypt under pharaoh's hand was decreed upon his descendants in the place of judgment there is sin what the Ramban says that Avram failed to trust in God to save him from the famine. And instead of placing, instead he put his wife in peril, therefore the entire exile uh, in the land of Egypt that all of our ancestors became slaves afterwards happened because of this. This means that according to the Ramban, the Jewish people experienced 210 years of slavery because of the actions of one man. Actions which, by the way, were totally justifiable because of because according to some other commentaries but because abraham was a patriarch because he acted his actions had major repercussions not only for himself but for future generations that's one example what happens to the patriarchs is going to happen to the next generation you abraham took yourself out of israel and went into egypt your descendants they're going, to be get, they're going to get stuck as slaves in Egypt. Another example, if you look at source number three, if you turn the page, turning the page to page two, the War of Kings. This is chapter 14 of the book of Genesis. Uh, just to give you the story, we're going to study Nachmanides' approach to it. Essentially, there were two alliances. One was made up of four kings and the other of five, which included the cities of Sodom and Amorah, If you you remember this, there was the the war of the five kings versus the four kings. And one was made up of four kings, the other of five. And the one that had five included the cities of Sodom and Amorah, where Abraham's nephew Lot was living. And in the war, Lot and his family are captured. Avraham leads his own army to save Lot and his family. Again, why do we need all this detail An entire chapter in the book of Genesis is taken up with the detail of this battle. Says the Ramban, look at what the Nachmanides writes, This episode happened to Abraham to indicate that the four kingdoms would arise to reign in the world throughout the ages, and in the end his descendants would prevail over them. The kingdoms, you know what kingdoms he's talking about, he's going to mention in a minute, listen. The kingdoms would fall into their hands and the kingdoms would return all the captives, and plundered possessions taken from Abraham's descendants. Just as Abraham defeated the four kings and rescued his captured nephew and retrieved the booty seized by these kings, the first of the four kings mentioned here, Amraphel, was the king of Babylonia. So it would be in the future. And he goes on to say that this is an allusion to the king of Rome. What are the different kings that arose later in Jewish history to which the Jewish people were subject? Babylonia, Persia, Greece, Rome. The four kings fight and five kings in the book of Genesis that Abraham got involved with, Nachmani suggests that it's in the Torah as an allusion to what was gonna happen later to the Jewish people. And so the episode with the four kings in the Torah is recorded to foretell how in the future, just like Abraham had to contend with these four kings, ultimately defeating them, rescuing his nephew Lot, so too the Jewish people later in Jewish history would one day be subject to the four empires, Babylonia, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And, and like Avraham beforehand prevailed, your descendants will prevail. Because Avraham prevailed in this war between the four and five kings, that's a message to the Jewish people that we too will prevail against these mighty kingdoms. And then he gives another example with Hagar and Muslim anti-Semitism, which is actually very interesting. Take a look at source number four. This is the story of Sarah and Hagar. Take a look at source number four if you're familiar with the story. Sarai, Abraham's wife, bore him no children. She had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. I have to just get something to drink. Hang on one second. Oh, look at this. Just happened to have some water. I ate something before. But I'm just so thirsty, I'm just gonna have a little water with your permission. Mm. Okay. Somebody also just tell me when I hit one o'clock and then one ten. Um, I got a lot of interesting material for you guys. So Sarah, Avraham's wife, had no children. She had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was hagar sarai said to avram this is before their names were changed to abraham and sarah uh, they were now, now sarai and abram okay so see now hashem had restrained me from bearing consort now with my maiden my maid servant perhaps i'll be built up through her and avram heeds the voice of sarai so basically sarah gives over hagar to Abraham, This was done in the ancient world. If someone was unable to have children, they would give over their maidservant to be able to have children with and it became like their child. Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar and at the end of 10 years of Abraham's dwelling in the land of Canaan, gave her to Abraham as, as a wife. He consorted with her, she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was lowered in her esteem. Sarai then said to this outrage against me is due to you. It was I who gave my maidservant and when she saw that she conceived, I became lowered in her esteem." What is going on here? Now, Sarai eventually throws Hagar out of the home, and it's a whole, whole story. And there are all these attempts at trying to justify Sarai's, um, Sarai, Abraham's wife's uh, behavior. Uh, The most simple explanation is that their son, Yishmael, who was first Abraham's son together with Hagar, Um, was a very, very um, bad influence on Isaac, who was the son that uh, eventually Sarah had a child with Abraham and they had Isaac. And the netziv writes, um, one of the great um, more modern day commentators, that Sarah viewed Hagar's disrespectfulness against her as an affront to God himself, since Sarah was seen as a representative of Hashem and therefore had to deal harshly with her but the Ramban, Nachmanides, writes that Sarah's behavior towards Hagar was wrong. was wrong. And that as a result, Hagar was given a son, Yishmael, who would oppress the descendants of Abraham. Now, How do we understand the Ramban, Nachmanides? If you look at the bottom, that's where he writes here. Our matriarch Sarah sinned in the suppression of Hagar, as did Abraham sin for allowing her to do so. God therefore heard Hagar's prayer, gave her a son who would Continue to read, Being wild ass of a man to oppress the descendants of Abraham and Sarah with all sorts of oppression, measure for measure. Whoa. Now, how do you understand this? Because of one woman's actions, the Jewish people are now subject to anti-Semitism? Where's the free will? Where's the free will with all of these examples? Because Abraham lacks faith According to Nachmanides, and doesn't and, and he doesn't stay in Israel when there's a famine. He leaves Israel, he goes down to Egypt, his descendants, our descendants become slaves in Egypt. right? What was the other example? We gave the war, the five kings and the four kings because Abraham fought a war against four kings. The Jewish people are going to be subject to the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. Because one thing happened to a few people, so much has to happen to the entire Jewish people. What does this mean? And because Sarah acts harshly with Hagar, we the descendants are subject to Muslim anti-Semitism. How do we understand this? And by the way, if you have a problem with this, sorry for all the noise in the background. If you have a problem with all of this, you're in excellent company. Because the late and great Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, take a look at source number five on the next page of the handout. Or is it on page three of the handout? Look at source number five. Um, I want to continue to mention things about Rabbi Lamb. So you should know that Rabbi Lamb was um, one of the only of the only Rabbi ever to receive both his rabbinic ordination and his PhD from Rabbi Selavichik. Rabbi Lamb had a degree in chemistry, an advanced degree in chemistry. He was a chemist, but he was also an extraordinary scholar in Jewish philosophy. And he got his doctorate from Rav Soloveitchik in his uh, Doctrine on Philosophy besides his rabbinic ordination. Recording now from Rav Soloveitchik, who Rabbi Lamb was a major, major student of. Uh, also, as a little aside, going to tell little snippets about Rabbi Lamb over the course of this week. is a great picture with Rabbi Lamb and Rav Soloveitchik and Rabbi Saul Berman, he should live and be well. He's a rabbi, he lives on the Upper West Side as well. Uh, at the first Talmud class ever taught to women, Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik taught the first Talmud class to women. He went to Stern College for women. I forgot what year that was. He took two of his students with him: Rabbi Lam and Rabbi Saul Berman. There's a great picture of Rabbi Salavitchik sitting in a classroom filled with women at Stern College, which is a Shiva University school for women, together with Rabbi Lam and Rabbi Saul Berman. <speaking in Hebrew> so take a look at source number five. If you have a problem with this free will issue with, with a, uh, something happening to Abraham and all of a sudden it has to happen to his descendants? Where's the free will? Rabbi Soloveitchik wrote about this. Page eight and nine to conclude the question. Take a look. Chazal were already aware of the strange parallelism between the lives of the patriarchs and the historical drama of our people. Um, as the Medrash says, whatever happened to Abraham happened to his children. Similarly, uh, we say, "Go and pave the way before your children." Yet, no commentator before Nachmanides exploited these statements as he did. Nachmanides organized them into a philosophy of history. Jewish history is basically the history of the patriarchs, right? Because everything that happened to the patriarchs basically repeated itself in Jewish history. So, all of Jewish history is just the unfolding of the, all of everything that happened to the patriarchs in the Book of Genesis. And that's why Nachmanides says the Book of Genesis is so detailed about their lives. In other words, the lives of the patriarchs contain a blueprint for the Jewish historical process. Nachmanides was not satisfied with the theory of historical paradigms or illusions. He was the father of the idea that Jewish history was predetermined, that's the word I wanted to share, predetermined by the activities of the patriarchs. And this is a serious problem, theologically, because we just said that we have control over our lives. We create Jewish history. Jewish history doesn't just unfold. The choices and decisions we make as Jews create the history. The choices you and I make in our own personal lives create our own history. So the choices that Jews have made, Nachmanis really believes that what the choices that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob made, that creates Jewish history to come? The question that arises from this is a very simple one. By introducing a a prei symbiotic ideology into Jewish history, Nachmani seems to have abandoned historical freedom and replaced it with rigid determinism. Once the divine decree has been translated into metaphorical action, I'm just reading the underline, it cannot be changed. The whole of Jewish history turns into a mechanical affair over which human beings have no control. Now go to the right-hand column, please where I have a little squiggly there. You see the little squiggly on the right? Page three of your... uh, So he gives an answer. Rav gives the following answer. He says, in my opinion, the answer to this question is simple. Certainly the experiences of the patriarchs foreshadowed the tragic, as well as the redeeming events of posterity. He says it's true that what happened to our patriarchs and our matriarchs, recorded in the book of Genesis, foreshadowed. Whatever happened to our forefathers was bound to transpire in the life of the nation. The patriarchs indeed spoke the language of premonitory and anticipatory signs. However, the events narrated by the Bible serve as signs or symbols of future events. Any sign or symbol is subject, though, to interpretation, for the semantics of signs and of symbolic language is multiple. Signs can be interpreted in many ways. There is, of course, a message in every biblical scene and event. This message is related to future scenes and events. Yet the freedom of the people of the Bible has not been curtailed, because a message, like a sign, is subject to interpretation, and the latter is a many-faceted, heterogeneous affair. So this is very interesting. He's saying that because you can interpret the same story differently, it's not as though what happened to the patriarchs and matriarchs control what's going to happen. It all depends on how you interpret and understand. Look what he says. Each event, just skip down to where it's continued to be underlined, in the next paragraph. Each event was predetermined by the symbolic acts of the patriarchs. Yet, in every generation, how to interpret the event is up to the individual or to the people as a whole. The Jew is free to choose from the many alternative interpretations of that event. And my teacher, since we're not bound, therefore, by any single interpretation of these events in the Torah, we do not have to be passive objects. When those events happen to us, we can freely act in terms of how we want to deal with them because there are multiple ways of interpreting those events. Okay, so yes, everything that happened to the patriarch will happen again, Yes, their life experience serve as signs for the future. But how we interpret those signs, how we interpret the things that happened, the life events that happened to our matriarchs and patriarchs is up to us. And therefore, when those events present themselves to us again in our generation, in our lives, we can still choose how to deal with them. Since we're not bound by any single interpretation of these events in the Torah, we do not have to be passive objects. And we can freely act in terms of how we want to deal with them. And another one of my teachers, who was actually Rabbi Schacht, Rabbi Lam's successor, Rabbi Lam was also the, the rabbi for many, many years of the Jewish Center, um, where MGE is based and we're very, very close and partners with the Jewish Center. Um, and Rabbi Schachter took over for Rabbi Lam, He was his assistant. And Rabbi Schachter said... Um, and by the way, we're having a memorial service. Uh, I posted it on Facebook yesterday, um, and Rabbi Shachter will be speaking about Rabbi Lamb in the memorial service. I believe it is at it's either eleven thirty or two thirty tomorrow. I forgot which one. Just check the post. This is in line with Rabbi Salvachik's overall philosophical approach, says Rabbi Shachter, of transforming ourselves from object to subject, from passive in terms of how we deal with things in life, to active, right? This approach can be found in three different parts of Rav Salveitchik's classic works, and maybe we'll go through this tomorrow, um, but this is a very important theme in Rabbi Salvechik's whole philosophy and ideology, and it very much speaks to what happened in the United States in the last couple of days. We do not have to be subjects or objects to things that happen in life. When certain things happen, we don't simply say, that's what happened and there's gonna be a response. And this is gonna be the response. I have no control over the response. After all, I'm angry, I'm upset, and this is what I get like when I become angry and when I, when I become upset. There's no such thing. And even though we're going into the Torah now and there are things that in the Torah that, the, that Nachmanides is telling us, those stories are mentioned in such gleaming, in such glaring detail because that stuff's gonna happen again. Does that mean that stuff's gonna happen again? You have no choice as to how to react to it. No, you have a lot of choices as to how to act to it because there are different and multiple ways to interpret every single event that happens to us in our lives. And because there are different ways, there isn't one way that you have to happen. Someone gets killed, unjustifiable murder, this is the way you have to respond. No, there are multiple ways of how we have to respond. And some some, uh, ways are more moral or less moral than others. Clearly the way Unfortunately, some people have responded is immoral. Other people have responded by um, attending rallies and social distancing themselves. I saw when I, uh, just on Shavuot, I went to the park to meet some people um, and to do some learning and studying. We're starting to do that a little here and there, very small group of people socially distant and I was walking to Central Park, huge crowd of people that were walking as part of a protest as to what happened. They were walking socially distant. they had masks on, and they were, um, you know, um, singing songs and and, and chanting uh, words respectfully. That is an appropriate moral response to what happened, to try to pressure in a reasonable kind of way our elected officials to make changes, policy changes to prevent this kind of catastrophe and racism and bigotry from ever happening again. And then there are ways of saying, I'm so angry, I'm so upset. There's nothing we can do. I need to vent. I just need to vent. I need to burn something. I need to beat someone up. Clearly, that's irresponsible. And what this interpretation is teaching is that even though things repeat themselves, things in the Torah that happen in the book of Genesis happen again. You say, oh, I need to react to it in the same way they did. No, you don't. No, you don't. You have free will. You have the power. And What I'd like to do is go through. If you look at source six, seven, eight, I'm going to do this uh, tomorrow. We want to pick up here and develop this idea of not becoming an object and not looking at yourself as, I have no choice, something happened to me in life, corona hit, and I just have to be passive. You're right, corona hit, and unfortunately a lot of life got put on hold, and we couldn't do all sorts of things, and the right way to respond on some level with corona was to be a little more passive. But there's still things that we can do. Rabbi Ezra and I were on um, a wonderful um, um, discussion uh, on, with Sawyer so at Sinai. He organized this and and about dating. Does that mean we can't date anymore? No, we can't date in the way we used to date, but we can still continue to date. Okay, we can't pray in synagogue together. Does I mean we stop praying? No, we can't pray. We can't pray like this. We can pray by that. The idea is that not to become passive, not to become an object. It's one of the great themes that emerges from our Salvatric writings. That when stuff happens to you in life, we react in number one, a morally upstanding kind of way. And two wrongs don't make a right. We never say because that person did something wrong, now it's justifiable for me to do something wrong. Nothing good happens. Nothing good happens when when we react to a situation like that, that's number one. Number two though, we don't want to be just sort of like dust in the wind, being pushed from one circumstance of life to the next. We want to assert a certain level of control. And I'm gonna give you a little homework. If anyone could just post what time it is. I literally am sitting in a room without any clocks, uh, without any uh, indication of time here. Time is standing uh, still here. What I wanna to do tomorrow is get into um, some writings of Raf Solveitchik on this particular idea. I think it is source, uh, I already did three. Yeah, so take a look on your own. Read source number six. Seven and eight. Read, read the last couple of sources. I'm going to give you a little homework. Why not? Hopefully you have a little time. Oh, it's 1.21. I'm going to finish up. Um, source six, seven, eight. And some of this ties in, believe it or not, to Zionism. Because the Jewish people were the ultimate object of other peoples pushing us around from generation to from, from persecution to persecution. For 2,000 years, the Jewish pushed around. And we were literally the object of other people's persecution. And we asserted our own independence. We went from being object to subject. That's one of the great lessons and teachings of Rav Salvechik, And it's a belief that Judaism holds dear in terms of our belief on the matrix, on free will. I talked about the matrix because it's a great, great movie that somehow um, makes you feel like all of life has just been pre-planned. You and I are just actors playing a little part on some sort of stage of life. But we don't really have the ability to exert free will. And I want to continue this topic and discussion tomorrow with some really amazing uh, sources uh, and talk about Zionism a little, which is another great um, expression of this nationally. But I want to speak on the more personal level. Because think to yourself, what situations in life have made you feel like you are simply the object and there's nothing you can do. It could be in a relationship when you're dating someone and the ball is in their court. It could be in a job where we continue to uh, accept, God forbid, abuse from an employer because we can't lose the job and we just have to sort of suck it up. Are there ways to exert our own free will, to go from being object to subject? Judaism very much believes we can, and at the same time we still believe that we are influenced by our friends, by our by our peers, by our colleagues, by our parents and our professors from college. Clearly those things are at play, but they do they fully control? If I have anger issues, do I have to vent my anger when I'm feeling angry, I have no control over it? We know that that's not true. We're gonna talk a little more practically tomorrow, how we can exert control, how we can be a little less passive and more reactive in a both moral and theological upstanding way to follow the great examples that Rav Salvechik gives us um, and try to defy some of those statistics I gave you earlier. That if you're the child of divorced parents, you have no choice but to be in a divorce relationship. If you're the child of alcoholics or your parents or your father was a big gambler, you're gonna gamble too. All those statistics are true, but do we have to be subject to them exactly and if we don't, because Judaism doesn't believe you need to be, you can break out of it. The question is how? And we're going to drill down on that a little more tomorrow. So I encourage you to come back 12.30 tomorrow. All of this Torah is being learned in memory of my teacher and Rebbe, Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb. Um, I was always saying, live and be well. I want to tell you some more stories about Rabbi Lamb tomorrow, Bli Nadir, and over the course of the week. Um, I have such sweet and beautiful experiences that I'd like to share with you about his life. You know, he lived right here on the Upper West Side. Unfortunately, both his wife and he both passed away um, in this very, very short period of time. And I want to express my greatest condolences to the family. Um, my dear friend Josh Lamb, who's in Velut now, um, and uh, Rabbi Lamb's son. who's a great... Um, help to me in my personal life as well. The family, the Lamb family, should have only uh, joy and happiness and they should be comfort amongst all the other mourners of Zion in Israel. And let us continue to daven and to pray for peace and to make sure that the civil rights movement is continued and developed in the right way, that late and great Dr. Martin Luther King developed it and other great leaders of the civil rights movement and that it doesn't get tainted by some of the extreme groups that are now trying to exploit this moment to to to, to add to violence with more violence, which we all know never solves anything. And please God, we should be part of the, pro- the solution and not God forbid, part of the problem. Stay safe everyone. Thank you all for listening. Continue to practice safe social distancing and make sure to reach out to someone who could use your uh, helpful uplifting voice throughout the day we'll see you tomorrow have a great day
0: we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the wilds cast Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.